You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. I'm your host, as always, Ankit Panda, broadcasting from New York City. Now, in the past few episodes, I've focused quite a bit on U.S. policy in Asia. Understandable to an extent, given the transition that's underway in this country, and focusing primarily on the legacy that will be left by the Obama administration as it looks to leave office. Today, I want to go back to some of what made this podcast popular in the first place, which is a deeper dive discussion into the politics and geopolitics of Asian states that don't usually occupy the limelight in the mainstream news, especially in the West. So today's episode takes us to Southern Asia and focuses on a country I haven't talked about on the podcast in much detail for a while now. Uh, Specifically, we're going to talk about Sri Lanka today, a small island nation of about 20 million people off the southeastern coast of India, separated from the Asian mainland by the Palk Strait. And to help us understand Sri Lanka, um, I'm joined today by Taylor Dibbert, who's been writing for us regularly on Sri Lanka at The Diplomat and has spent some time in the country there as well. Um, And he's pretty closely wired in to both the domestic debates and the foreign policy position of the island. So, Taylor, I want to welcome you onto the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Good to be here, Ankit. Thanks for having me. Great. So I I gave you a very brief introduction, but do you want to talk a bit more about uh, what you're up to right now and, uh, you know, how you became interested in Sri Lanka in the first place? Uh, sure. So I, um, I guess it was about seven years ago. I was in school in uh, New York, actually, and uh, signed up to do one of these capstone uh, projects. Mm-hmm. So I kind of randomly, uh, Sri Lanka was my second choice, and I didn't get Egypt. And so I went to the country for a um, brief period in 2010 and uh, you know, graduated in 2011 and just kind of stayed on it. Got it. Um, so 2010 is a, um, you know, I should note that 2010 sounds like a pretty significant year to be in Sri Lanka. Um, I'm guessing that was less than a year after the war had officially ended. Is that right? Yeah, a little more. I could have, I'm trying to think here. 20, you know, late, the very end of 20, you know, the, the semester break. So the very end of 2010 or early 2011. Got it. Um, but yeah, the war was very much uh, on people's minds when I first arrived there. Got it. And that's actually something, uh, you know, I want to start this discussion with uh, is the Sri Lankan Civil War, um, you know, lasted around three decades and ended in 2009, which I don't think people realize uh, how recent that was for a, uh, you know, for a country um, that's, you know, still really dealing with the wounds, Um, at least its politics uh, still reverberate with that, as I'm sure you'll explain in more detail. But, you know, Taylor, give us a brief uh, rundown of what, you know, the primary takeaway should be about the Sri Lankan Civil War for a listener of this podcast who maybe isn't as wired into the country's politics as you are. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, I think this is important context for the discussion we're about to have. Yeah. So um, so the the Sri Lankan Civil War was, it's basically about um, state power, right? And um, after Sri Lanka became an independent country, um, the ethnic Sinhalese or Sinhalic community began to uh, discriminate against ethnic Tamils, which is one of the minority communities in a host of areas ranging from language to education to land uh, and elsewhere. And so this led, there were various kind of anti-Tamil pogroms, uh, and this led to the rise of Tamil militancy in the 70s. And subsequent to that, basically the the liberation tigers of Tamil Elam or the Tamil Tigers or the LTT, whatever you want to call them, uh, they kind of emerged as the preeminent uh, Tamil militant group and essentially waged a civil war uh, that was largely fought in the north and east of the country. 
until May of 2009. So the the LTT were fighting for a separate Tamil state, uh, uh, an Elam, uh, in in that part of the country. Right. Um, and, you know, if listeners are wondering why we're doing this podcast now, um, there's actually a good reason, which is that we're two years out from a pretty spectacular election result uh, that came in January 2015 in Sri Lanka when uh, Maitripala Sirisena unexpectedly defeated Mahinda Rajapaksha for the presidency of the country. Um, and Taylor, you know, I'm curious for your opinion on this, since uh, this is primarily what you've been writing about for The Diplomat, is you've been tracking the Syria Senate presidency in some ways and commenting on how this government has dealt with the has dealt with the wounds of the Civil War, but also with governance more broadly. Um, so there's a lot of issues to talk about here. I mean, uh, you know, Rajapaksha obviously had a very particular perception internationally. He was strongly criticized for um, not really taking a real interest in helping the country heal after the Civil War. Um, and, you know, Sirisena's election, at least early on, was viewed a bit, um, perhaps a bit too jubilantly in some sectors of the mainstream media, at least in the West, where he was seen as a reformer who understood where Sri Lankan politics would have to go in order to fully deal with the wounds of the Civil War and help the country move past that. Um, so I guess a place for us to begin is, you know, just to get a sense of your opinion of the Sirisena government. You know, what are the pros and the cons? I mean, I know that a lot of what you write for us um, has been critical of the government in some ways, but I'm wondering, you know, yeah. uh, if you had to highlight the areas where you think this government has done a good job, um, you know, where would you begin? Let's start with that and we'll move on to the criticisms later. Okay. Yeah. So um, just at the outset, I, I mean, just to kind of frame it a bit, I mean, it, my sense of the Saracen's election, the Saracen's win and then the August election, um, you know, Tamil issues or minority rights or reconciliation. I mean, these weren't really part of the campaign discourse. So I think also Saracen's win should be kind of examined in that light, right? So um, uh, in terms of the pros, you know, on on rights, I think are things better? Sure. Uh, is using 2014, 2013 of Mahinda Rajapaksa's reign a very useful baseline? Not for me. Um, so in terms of freedom of uh, freedom for dis- for dissent, uh, you know, freedom of movement, things are definitely better. Um, the government passed the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which um, trimmed executive power, strengthened the office of the prime minister and sought to restore uh, independence to various ind- uh, various commissions. It also reinstated the two term limit for the presidency, which Rajapaksa had gotten rid of. Um, and a right to information bill was passed, uh, somewhat recently. So those are all good, good things. Um, in terms of the cons, I mean, I I think unfortunately there are a lot now. And so it's not just, um, on transitional justice, um, there are concerns about whether the government is serious or really was ever serious about a lot of the commitments it's made at the Human Rights Council and kind of more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of looking at the broader reform agenda, I mean, if you're looking at, you know, economic reform, um, anti-corruption, uh, the war-related issues, um, it's it's now not only a question of, it, it's, the issue isn't only that a lot hasn't been implemented or most of it hasn't been implemented. I think now people are, are wondering if it ever will be. Right. And so I think that that is 
is is the issue. Yeah, so let me uh, ask you, you know, uh, let's talk a bit about Jaffna. Uh, and for listeners, uh, Jaffna is the northern area of the Sri Lankan island, which is primarily uh, where the Tamils um, are positioned and was a heavy uh, was a site of heavy fighting during the civil war uh, over the three decades. So, you know, what is life like in, in Jaffna now for ordinary Tamils? I mean, how have things appreciably gotten better or gotten worse um, since the 2015 election result? Yeah. So my, my sense is, um, you know, freedom of uh, in, in the kind of space for dissent is also improved in the northern province more broadly, which mm-hmm. includes China. Um, and so that's a good thing, I think. But one of the issues, and this is something that kind of when sometimes when people talk about the government's, uh, you know, uh, doubt the government's sincerity vis-a-vis transitional justice, one of the reasons that comes up is because daily life in a place like Jaffna, I mean, Jaffna town, okay, maybe you know, there's some commercial activity and you can walk around and, and in that sense, it's fine. But, um, you know, there are a lot of problems like in terms of um, widespread uh, militarization. Um, my sense is since the new government came to power, the, the government is less involved in civilian affairs at least in certain parts of the North, but they're still quite involved, right? So that has a really negative effect uh, on, on uh, people living there. It also kind of, you have the military encroaching into uh, civilian commercial activity, including agriculture, tourism. I mean, this is happening in other parts of the country too, mm-hmm. but it's, de- it's definitely worse in the North. Uh, so there, there's that issue. Um, there's, you know, being a journalist in, uh, in Jaffna or in, in the North is, is, definitely not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of, um, you know, when I, I haven't been for a while, when I was there in, I guess the early part of last year, um, there was a sense that, uh, people were frustrated at the lack of progress, whether it's Tamil political prisoners giving back more land, even trying to make some modest improvements to daily life. There was a sense that the government wasn't doing enough. And mm-hmm. you know, I remember being at a, I did a focus group discussion with um, about 20 people outside of Jaffna town and I was getting on a motorbike to, to leave after the meeting and I heard some people laughing and so I had the person translating for me ask what was what was said and it was something to the tune of, uh, you know, uh, foreigners keep coming but nothing ever changes, right? So since Sarasena came to power, there's been a lot of dip- high level diplomatic visits from the US but other countries. And there's been a lot of other kind of a renewed interest in various uh, parts of the NGO community where it was becoming harder to do the work under Rajapaksa. But so, so these people are visiting, right? They're getting out to see people in the north. But at the same time, uh, I think the, the progress is, is, has been very slow. Right. I just wanted to ask you to, uh, you know, briefly clarify the term transitional justice, which is pretty central to the conversation we've been having, because you just outlined, you know, what the gamut of issues that fall under the uh, area of transitional justice are specifically in the Sri Lankan context. Yeah. So in the Sri Lankan context, when generally um, when people particularly since October of 2015, which is when the the government co-sponsored a resolution uh, at the U.N. Human Rights Council in Geneva, which laid out a broad uh, transitional justice agenda. And so they, it includes a lot of, a lot of stuff and I'm definitely not a transitional justice person really, but, um, you know, there are four key mechanisms that the government has said it's going to create to help deal with Sri Lanka's, um, ethnic conflict. 
So that includes offices to deal with missing persons and reparations, and it includes a truth commission and an accountability mechanism or some sort of justice mechanism. Um, related to that, I think it's hard, you know, the government seems to be most interested in, and even this hasn't been going that well recently, but in its constitution building project, which is supposed to include a political solution, mm-hmm. uh, essentially a power sharing arrangement that, that would work for the Tamil community. I'm extremely skeptical that that is going to happen. But, um, you know, when you talk about kind of in, uh, ending the ethnic conflict or finding some kind of durable peace, a political solution is is an essential element of that. So, um, yeah, that that's kind of where, but there are other issues, right? I mean, other things that need to be dealt with in terms of ranging from giving, uh, returning land to reforming the security sector to, um, you know, there's a, a piece of anti-terror legislation that was, it's called the Prevention of Terrorism Act that the government has promised to repeal. It's had a disproportionately uh, negative effect on the Tamil community. And what it does is it gives security personnel broad powers to search and arrest and detain people. Got it. So, yeah. Great. Um, all right. So I want to transition the conversation a bit um, to the geopolitics um, aspect of all this, and particularly looking at the changes that came to Sri Lanka's foreign policy and position within the broader Asian geopolitical realm um, after the election in uh, January 2015. Um, so under Rajapaksha, and this is an area that I know slightly better, uh, was you know there was a perception that Sri Lanka had drifted away from India and into China's lap. Um, and you know that might sound a little bit flippant, but um, you know rhetorically, if you're looking at what people were saying in New Delhi, there was a perception that China was using its classic checkbook diplomacy to lure Sri Lanka, which was um, looking for investment from abroad into a variety of projects. Um, And a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of the Chinese outreach, I thought, was um, interesting. I mean, if you look at the aid that China sent to Sri Lanka between 2005 and 2012, just 2% took the form of grants, and the rest were actually loans, um, and the interest rates weren't actually that great. But, uh, you know, Rajapaksha, and, you know, here, uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about the allegations of corruption uh, against Rajapaksha and his um, family members as well. Uh, you know, he wasn't essentially great for India's interest with Sri Lanka. And historically, um, again, you know, there's a lot to talk about here with the Civil War, India's involvement, um, you know, resentment of the Indian role in Sri Lanka, which is sometimes perceived as overbearing. Uh, but Taylor, you know, if you had to reflect broadly on the changes that Sirisena brought about in Sri Lanka's foreign policy, um, you know, where would um, where would we begin? I mean, if I recall during the election campaign, he'd put out a manifesto that had called for balancing relations between India and China. And I think a lot of people, especially uh, in New Delhi, took that as a very positive sign. And there were even allegations um, in Sri Lanka that Indian external intelligence, the research and analysis wing, had actually encouraged Sirisena to run against Rajapaksa. And he's actually a former member of his government, uh, which is interesting. So obviously, there's a lot to talk about here in the geopolitics of Sri Lanka. Um, I find fascinating. I mean, this island is simply endowed with a dream of a strategic location, right at the apex of the Indian Ocean, at the tip of, um, at the southern tip of India, along um, critical sea lanes connecting, you know, everything from the Strait of Hormuz to the southern tip of Africa to um, Eastern Asia via the Straits of Malacca. So um, obviously, that's a, you know, I just said a lot, but uh, I'm eager to hear yep. your take on uh, Sri Lanka's um, foreign policy under Sirisena. Yeah, so I think um, clearly Sarasena, and I mean, also it's important to keep in mind this is, it's now, it's a, a coalition government, right? So the prime minister is is heavily involved in, in a lot of ways, more involved in kind of the day-to-day um, administrative affairs of, 
of running the running the country. Um, but clearly, there was an attempt to kind of strike a more even balance. Uh, you know, definitely there was a sense that um, it, it wasn't just uh, that the Chinese loans, the kind of development work that the Chinese was funding and continues to fund. It's not just that, it, that those projects were are, are unsustainable. It's that it's the lack of transparency surrounding them, right? So one of the principal reasons that Sarasena uh, won was the perception that Mahinda Rajapaksa was running this uh, extremely corrupt, nepotistic uh, regime with dynastic ambitions, and there was you know rising authoritarianism all over the place. So, um, but unfortunately, uh, while I think in some ways, and you know, I think for a lot of people, the foreign minister. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, he's had a lot to do with um, changing people's perceptions about the new government, right? So he's given a lot of speeches, using a lot of flowery, flowery language that that isn't really connected to policy. That said, I do think you know certainly uh, India, uh, India Sri Lanka relations and and uh, Sri Lanka U.S. relations are are in much better shape. Um, I do, I do think there is a concern, just circling back to the corruption stuff because we haven't talked about it that much, it, I think there's now a, a real concern that high-level corruption will never be dealt with. So not only from the Mahinda Rajapaksa, from his administration, but the government now, the new government, has its own corruption scandals, right? So that's, that's alarming. Um, but I think, yeah, I think people, I think my census policymakers in Colombo have learned that you know, it's it's helpful to kind of have a more balanced foreign policy. That said, I mean, you know, they need uh, because of what has transpired these past ten years. There's a limit, uh, really, to how much they can pivot away from Beijing, and I think they also uh, see that too. Absolutely. So, um, and from the Indian, uh, you know, the Indian perspective here is interesting. Uh, you know, one of the dynamics I find interesting in India's policy towards Sri Lanka is the conflict within India between the central government and the Tamil parties in Tamil Nadu in the south, which have a very different agenda when it comes to relations with uh, Sri Lanka. And you see this on a range of issues. I mean, uh, most prominently, this is something I wrote on recently, was the issue of you know fishermen swaps. Uh, there's been this long-standing uh, maritime dispute between the two countries in the Palk Strait. Um, so can you talk a bit about that? I mean, um, have you, um, you know, heard much about this from the Sri Lankan perspective? I mean, how they've perceived the Modi government managing that conflict? between, uh, you know, the interests in the Indian South among uh, Indian Tamils and the central government, which has a more realist geopolitical understanding of the benefits of closer ties with Sri Lanka? Yeah, I, you know, my sense, so Modi went and Modi visited uh, Sri Lanka uh, in 2015. Uh, and that was, I believe, the first time uh, an Indian prime minister had been in almost 30 years. He even went to Jaffna, which was symbolically huge. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't know what precisely is driving it, but I, uh, I think there, there is some sense that in, some, in certain ways the Modi government is less invested uh, in Sri Lanka, or at least in, in terms of Tamil issues, Got it. than the, the Singh administration was. And maybe some of that does have to do with, you know, uh, pragmatism and, and coalition politics, right? So Modi doesn't have to necessarily... Um, he, he has more flexibility. 
No, I mean, that sounds right to me. I mean, um, you know, just uh, at the start of the new year, uh, India and Sri Lanka had a ministerial level talk, and the Indians actually agreed to clamp down on their fishermen using bottom trawling in the Palk Strait, which is a hugely unsustainable, environmentally destructive fishing mechanism. Um, And, you know, if you were reading commentary within India um, in the South, a lot of people were, you know, perceiving that as an example of, uh, you know, Tamil interests being, you know, cast aside. Uh, I mean, the tension in India has been that, you know, these Tamil fishermen say that these are their historical fishing grounds and the central government shouldn't really capitulate, so to speak, to uh, Sri Lankan interests on this area. But I thought that was an interesting um, episode that I think uh, underlines what you're saying about the Modi government. Um, It's been interesting. I mean, India has been putting a lot of uh, focus on the neighborhood diplomacy aspect. Um, But, you know, I mean, uh, what's your sense of, um, you know, what Sri Lanka's um, agenda will be going forward from here? And, you know, this applies to, uh, I think you laid out some of the domestic agenda going forward. But when it comes to foreign policy, I mean, is the primary agenda to improve the image of the country in the world, um, as you talked about with the foreign minister and his flowery speeches? Or, um, you know, is there a bigger picture? Yeah, I mean, I think the main, so, um, you know, repairing uh, relations with a host of Western countries, uh, especially the U.S., is is a big deal, right? I mean, I think, and I think you see this in in the way the Obama administration has approached uh, Sirisena's government. So there was in uh, February of last year there was the first ever uh, U.S.-Sri Lanka partnership dialogue, and there's going to be another that was held in D.C. and there's going to be another one. There's supposed to be another one this year, um, and so I think, in t- you know, going forward. Again, I, the government seems to really be. If you look at all the all the reforms they could do, I mean, I think the prime minister he's always been interested in economic issues, um, but I think at least in terms of 2017, the constitution is is the main is the main deal, right? So that could include um, potentially a political solution. Uh, electoral reforms, either abolishing the executive presidency and returning the country to a parliamentary democracy, or at least trimming down the executive presidency. Right. Um, the, those issues. Um, I'm just not sure in terms of you know broader questions pertaining to governance and corruption. And again, not to say that things are are the same as they were um, uh, under under Rajapaksa's uh, reign, but but there's also there's kind of a lot of a lot of issues that are still still big problems and and perhaps will continue to be big problems. Yeah, um, you know what are the odds of Rajapaksha trying to stage a comeback in the country? Well, I mean he's he's certainly talking about it. Um, I think you know so he's still it's for uh, maybe people that aren't uh, following as closely. I mean he's still he was a, when there was a parliamentary election. Uh, in August of 2015, he he contested and he right. mm-hmm. he won a seat. Now he he had hoped that uh, the, the broader uh, United People's Freedom Alliance, uh, his hope was that they would win the parliamentary elections and that he would be tapped as prime minister. That didn't happen. So um, he definitely commands. I mean, this is another big problem for Sirisena and for the coalition government. Um, you know, he he commands a certain amount of respect uh, with members of parliament, but also at the grassroots. And so um, one of the issues uh, in 2017, we're likely to see at some point local government elections and then elections to a few of the provincial councils. And, it, you know, it's really, uh, that's going to be awkward, right? Because the coalition partners aren't, aren't 
probably aren't going to run, you're not going to contest as a coalition. And so, I mean, it would be really embarrassing for Sarasena if uh, his part, you know, his part of the SL, the Sri Lanka Freedom Party came in third, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's something uh, to kind of look out for. But yeah, Sarasena's inability to kind of get, you know, usually, or I think the thinking was if you become president, it's easier to convince people to kind of be on your side, right? Because you've got the power. Right. And unfortunately, that that's not happened uh, as much. I think uh, that's not worked out as well for Sarasena as I think he and, and many others had hoped. So this coalition government is, is supposed to be together until uh, 2020, but it is an awkward alliance uh, that is based upon these two uh, to the two principal political parties in the country, which have historically been rivals. Got it. Well, Taylor, thanks a lot for your insights into Sri Lanka. Um, I found the discussion to be pretty illuminating, and I hope our listeners did too. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great. Yeah, I'll hope to have you back on uh, if, if and when Sri Lanka does uh, jump back into the headlines. Um, so for our listeners, as usual, I hope you'll subscribe if you like the podcast, and do leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps the show. And um, we'll be back next week with more. So stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for listening.